Okay, good morning, everybody, and Happy New Year, as the case may be. Uh, welcome to our first United States Study Center webinar for, for 2021. I'm Simon Jackman, Professor of Political Science at the University of Sydney and the Chief Executive Officer of the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney. And the University of Sydney stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, part of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Um, today's event takes place less than 24 hours uh, before the inauguration of uh, Joe Biden as America's 46th president. It's already Wednesday the 20th here in Australia. Um, and um, at, at about, uh, what will it be, about 4 a.m. Uh, Australian Eastern Daylight Time uh, tomorrow morning, Thursday, uh, Biden will be sworn in. Um, today, we're joined by uh, three of my colleagues from the United States Study Center uh, to talk through what we built originally as, um, as key players in the Biden administration. Um, but as, as, we'll, as we'll break up our time today, uh, not talking about the momentous um, events of the last fortnight or so in the United States is the proverbial um, elephant in the living room, so to speak. Uh, uh, so we'll, we will no doubt talk about that. And indeed, there's a, there's a course, there's an obvious and, and rather direct connection between those events and the sorts of uh, policies and politics we'll get out of these opening hours, days, weeks and months um, of, of this Biden administration. Um, to join me today uh, to talk about all of that, uh, I'm joined by, as I said, three of our colleagues. First of all, uh, Garana Grigic, who is jointly appointed between the United States Study Center and, and the university, uh, where she uh, has uh, a position in the Department of Government and International Relations. Uh, Garana is also uh, holds an adjunct appointment uh, through the good graces of our sister center, the Perth US Asia Center at the University of Western Australia. Garana spent time at Harvard and I'm sad to say uh, is, is leaving us to go to Rome, but only for a little while, uh, only for six months uh, or so, um, uh, where she'll be at the NATO Defence College, uh, which is a really super well-timed appointment given the Biden administration's uh, stated goal of, of, of a restoration of sort of normal transmission when it comes to European allies in particular. So that's something where Garana's fellowship will serve her and, and the United States Study Center and our mission uh, greatly. Great to have Garana with us. Um, joining us from Canberra uh, is, is Jen Hunt, who's a lecturer in national security at the Crawford School of Public Policy at Australian National University. And she is, of course, a non-resident fellow with us at the US Study Center. Jen specializes in the national security of critical systems, including energy and cyber. Uh, and has done a lot of work on, on disinformation. Um, her latest report, The COVID-19 Pandemic and Post-Truth, uh, which was released through the Global Health Security Network, looks at COVID-19 disinformation and conspiracy theories and their longer-term implications. And of course, for that reason, we thought Jen would be a superb uh, participant uh, in today's event that, as I said, has a slightly retrospective uh, frame um, as well as a prospective one. 
And, and last, but by no means least, uh, uh, from, um, from Balmain, we're joined by Bruce Volpe. <laughs> the People's uh, Republic. <laughs> uh, the People's Republic of, of Balmain. Um, uh, so the Birch Grove people are split as hell. That, yeah. Um, but anyway, um, Bruce is a non-resident senior fellow at the U.S. Study Center and quite simply knows more about the U.S. Congress than anyone. Uh, I think I can say that with, with, with a great deal of confidence than anyone uh, in Australia. Uh, Bruce worked um, uh, on Capitol Hill uh, for, for, for a good while. For, uh, and uh, the last time um, we had a Democratic president and a Democratic house. Um, and uh, Bruce brings tremendous expertise and insight as to what's going to happen on Capitol Hill, both in the, in the very near term, but also in the longer term uh, under, this Biden, under this Biden administration, where, of course, the surprise that, um, that the Dem Democrats will have a working, barely working majority uh, in the United States Senate uh, delivers uh, all three branches, um, uh, the two legislative chambers, and of course the executive branch, uh, to Democrats, and um, and that's why Bruce's expertise is going to be so important for this conversation, but also the many conversations the United States Study Center will be brokering over the next little while. So thank you all for joining us from uh, Canberra, the People's Republic of Balmain, and, and Garana from um, the other side of the building at the United States Study Center. Good morning to you all. Good morning, Simon. Thanks. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. Hey, look, I'm wondering if we could start um, with some reflections uh, from each of you. Over, over what we've witnessed over, over the last um, week or so. I said it's impossible to have a conversation, I think, about what we're likely to see unfold in this opening stanza of the Biden administration without some sort of reflection on, on the events of the, last, of the last couple of weeks. And, and you might even say the last couple of months, and you might say the last four or five years as well. But Jen, I wonder if I might come to you to, to begin with, um, the role that disinformation played uh, over the Trump presidency, but perhaps its very catalytic effect uh, over the last couple of months leading to that remarkable storming of the Capitol um, on um, uh, well, only a week or two ago now, January 6th, the data sort of seared into our memories now. Um, have we seen the high watermark now that Trump is off Twitter, uh, that Trump is, is going off to Mar-a-Lago, uh, some of the distance that you see, some sort of, you know, hitherto, they used to be called mainstream Republicans, <laughs> uh, uh, look to be putting between themselves and the outgoing president. I'm wondering if you could just sort of share some reflections based on your own work uh, and your own thinking on, on that proposition. Sure. Uh, thanks, Simon, so much for the invite. It's good to be back. Um, so remember in the 2017 inauguration of Trump, this is when we had the introduction of that famous phrase, alternative facts. And I think the last four years have really demonstrated their deadly consequences. We have a disinformation and conspiracy theories about COVID-19, which has thus far cost 400,000 lives in the United States. In fact, right now, uh, President-elect Biden is at the reflection pool in DC uh, commemorating those lives. And we also saw uh, Trump 
as conspiracy theorist in chief who started his campaign with a conspiracy theory about the eligibility of uh, President Barack Obama. We saw him end his presidency on a conspiracy theory as well, that any contest he loses must be fraudulent. Anything from the Emmys uh, to national elections. And that also had deadly consequences. Um, five lives at, at the Capitol building uh, were lost, a sixth by suicide. That was a Capitol police officer. And I think that we are continuing to see his legacy even though it is a bit quieter on Twitter and social media and Facebook, you have a group of Republicans that have followed that template to mainstream conspiracy theories for naked political gain. You have two members of QAnon that have been elected to Congress. Um, and Congress now has protective measures in place against themselves. We now have metal detectors inside the halls of Congress for members to go through after several Republican members insisted on carrying firearms. We now have a mask mandate inside Congress for other Congress members after everyone sheltered together in place and some Republican members refused to wear a mask during those attacks. Um, subsequently, three Democratic legislative members have now come down with COVID-19. And we have fines that have been levied um, because members indicated they wouldn't follow those rules in the interest of public health and safety. So I think the legacy of Trump will live on beyond his tenure. This won't only be a four year saga but we have uh, members of the party who have demonstrated the electoral success of this strategy. And uh, for those of you who are blessedly unaware of QAnon, uh, QAnon was declared a conspiracy-driven domestic terror threat by the FBI in 2019. It posits that anyone who is against Trump is part of a secret deep state cabal of sex traffickers. Um, I think Alex Jones, uh, one of the conspiracy theorists, theorists online, uh, whom Trump personally called in to, to, to congratulate for his support. I think he's noted that some of those uh, sex colonies might be on Mars. So this will impact policymaking uh, for years to come. These are the people that are making decisions about uh, apportionment of, of resources, how we fight global and national challenges. And I think that legacy will, will be very difficult to dislodge from the GOP without strong action uh, through a conviction and barring from office. Uh, you're muted, Simon. First webinar back for the year. My apologies. Uh, rookie error. Um, let's let's hope that's the last time in 2021 I do that. Um, I'm Garana. I'm wondering if I could turn to you uh, to get um, your reactions to anything that that Jen said. Just I know, like like myself, you know, we're doing a ton of media on this, and and even just dealing with. <laughs> the Uber driver or whatever it might be. Um, how is American democracy out of the woods? This is a question I get from family members, from ordinary people, you know, acquaintances, you know, civilians, you might say, as well as journalists. Um, how is this the opening stanza? Um, is, is the disinformation wave cresting and, and, and now receding? Um, or is there still, you know, a a, a real sort of danger of further incidents like the one we saw at the Capitol. I'm wondering your assessment of sort of the enormity or the magnitude, don't want to put words in your mouth, of, of, what, we, of what we saw a couple of weeks ago and, and what it might portend for sort of that stability 
of, of the system, if you will, before we get into the specifics of, of more mundane things like Biden policy and appointments. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Um, and it's great to be with all of you. Uh, as Simon said, I am reporting from the other end of the, the building and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation uh, on which University of Sydney stands. So um, what, uh, what I make of the past couple of weeks is certainly that uh, these events will seal Donald Trump's legacy. There's no doubt about that. What we've seen is US democracy, both figuratively and literally uh, under siege with uh, the insurrectionists that attacked the Capitol building. And uh, indeed, as Jen said, it all does feel like it's coming full circle. The presidency that began with a talk of carnage and alternative facts ends with basically uh, uh, bloodshed uh, and, and uh, again, this story of the big lie um, uh, over the 2020 election results. But what strikes me the most, and that goes to your question, Simon, around the, the state of American democracy, and I can't help but think of Schrodinger's cat, you know, uh, the, the kind of this uh, property of something being both alive and dead at the same time. And obviously, I'm not a quantum physics expert, and I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But it seems to me that at the same time, while we had uh, various uh, data points that showed that democracy survived and that the system held, we have to uh, remember that the voter turnout uh, in 2020 election uh, was at record levels that ultimately transition did happen. Uh, while Donald Trump hasn't formally conceded yet, this process is now coming to an end. Obviously, we are going to see the inauguration of the, uh, the 46th president uh, and ultimately the certification of votes um, at, uh, in the Congress at the Capitol resumed after uh, it, the, the whole building was overrun by insurrectionists. But at the at the same time, obviously, we uh, have this big question around what do you do when uh, you have 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump, out of which about half probably uh, on any given day believe that there were some uh, issues with that election that basically uh, either Donald Trump rightfully won or that there were uh, issues with electoral integrity, uh, that uh, a number of, again, uh, Republican voters believe that uh, the, the system system uh, is rigged, that it was skewed towards Democrats. And also, what do you do again in a system where we have the Electoral College produce the same number of votes, right? Uh, but obviously, uh, now with popular vote going with the Electoral College vote um, and uh, the margin actually that we had from, uh, from Clinton, 3 million to, to now uh, Biden around 7 million uh, still gives us this sort of situation where if we scrambled uh, the 100,000 votes differently around some of these critical battleground states, we might have seen uh, a different result uh, with the Electoral College altogether. So uh, going back to that earlier point, you know, uh, democracy uh, uh, still alive, if you think about, you know, political participation and, and competition, despite all the obstacles, but at the same time, uh, still predicated on a system that could have, you know, uh, been 
could have produced a much different result. And uh, one final thing for political science nerds out there, uh, we uh, entered the 2020 um, with the polity score um, for the United States, uh, designating the United States for the first time in its history as an anocracy. Now, um, obviously these various indicators of the health of uh, democracy are problematic because you know, back in 19th century, they would have deemed the United States to be a liberal democracy when it clearly wasn't that if you think about half of the, the uh, voting population actually not being able to, to exercise franchise. But at the same time, you know, uh, to just ponder on, the, on that uh, thought that uh, the United States, given everything what's been happening uh, over the past you know, four years, but especially over the past uh, month or so, uh, has now been designated as a as a regime that's somewhere in between a democracy and an autocracy. Thanks, Karana, for that. Um, um, and yeah, uh, yesterday, um, those of you that traffic in political science Twitter, um, um, there was has been a quite lively. A little bit of back and forth and indeed triggered by an essay in um, I think it was foreign affairs on exactly these coding schemes that um, the, the international political science community uses for classifying regimes um, and there's a very lively debate as to what constitutes a democracy um, we should probably reserve that for another webinar frankly I think I think this episode I might get Bruce to sort of weigh in on this this entire episode, I think, does raise some really deep and profound questions, suffice to say, you know, to put it, to put it rather uh, blandly, um, about, about the state of American markets. Garana, I loved um, uh, Schrodinger's cat as a, as a metaphor for the ambivalence, right? American democracy being in two states at once, one crisis uh, and, and sort of and, 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 uh, this tenuous sort of nature of it. But the other being quite robust, uh, and I think, as you rightly point out, um, the voter turnout, uh, the fact that the, the judicial institutions uh, did not uh, intervene uh, on behalf of the president, despite, what, 60 and, and plus uh, cases that were brought after the election, um, to say nothing of the, you know, literally hundreds that were brought before, um, to some extent, you know, and, and we are yet to have that transition of power yet. Uh, and, and that'll be noon Washington time tomorrow. And 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 I guess from a you know in a de facto sense, you know, a, a, an administration has to get seated as as well. But uh, one of my favourite political scientists, uh, Adam Chavorsky, has a binary definition of democracy. And did you have an election? Did the incumbent lose? And did the winner of the election uh, form the next government? If you've got those three things, uh, then you've got a democracy. The word peaceful transition does not appear in Adam's definition. Um, um, but, but from that perspective, and, and just linking it back to Schrodinger's cat, the wave function collapses and we observe one state of the, of the many possible. And, 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 and at least for, for Adam, um, provided that that transition does take place, um, you've got a democracy in the United States. Um, there's a live question, I think, as well, and again, one we need to come back to. I heard it put very poignantly by an American commentator over the last couple of days. You know, can America be a, a functioning multiracial democracy? I think that's a very poignant, powerful way of, I think, of, of putting, you know, what, what this has been really all about fundamentally. 
uh, and not just the last four years, by the way, but you might even ask, certainly since the Civil War, I think that is to some extent perhaps an er question um, about the Republic um, that we might get back to perhaps in another webinar. Um, Bruce, I hope that there's some highfalutin stuff to tee it up for you. I'm wondering about your reflections on the last couple of weeks, months, years, swing at that however you see fit in light of the comments from both Jen and Garan and perhaps myself as well. And indeed, you know, it might be time to start pivoting towards the future, what it portends um, for, for the sorts of, you know, what we're going to see over the next uh, days and weeks out of Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. And thanks to, uh, it's great to have Garana and Jen with us uh, along with Simon. So thank you. Um, uh, if, you, if we think about the webinars that we had, the sessions with our audience over the past months, uh, the, the, a real issue going into the election was, could America's democracy survive Trump's re-election? And President Obama warned explicitly about that at the Democratic Convention, and I thought it was a very powerful message. Um, I tweeted somewhat humorously. I said, well, if Trump had won re-election and the Democrats had held the House, he'd be impeached again in the second term. We didn't have to wait for the second term. <laughs> and what occurred was uh, really a uh, scary moment uh, because, but the institutions held, as, as Janet Carana said. But I've, in talking with um, uh, many in Washington, friends and colleagues, and many Republicans in Washington, the longer they absorb what happened on the 6th of January, the angrier they get. And uh, because of the profound threat it represented to a functioning democracy, the Congress fulfilling its constitutional responsibilities. And this is where uh, Mitch McConnell becomes very, very important. Um, he's done with Trump. Uh, he was done with Trump. It started with the disagreements over the second, the third COVID package just before Christmas when Trump tried to upend it with his demands. Uh, but it was sealed uh, absolutely. And, and then when McConnell made his judgment about the Electoral College, that in fact the purpose of the joint session was to ratify the Electoral College. And then what happened? Uh, and then overnight, we had a statement from him that he believes that Trump did provoke the mob to attack the Capitol, which says to me that um, he's prepared to convict uh, in the Senate trial and I believe that will, I believe a Senate trial will occur later next week. Um, I believe uh, Biden wants, and I think the Democrats want Schumer, Nancy Pelosi want to give uh, some clear air over these next very consequential days from the moment of swearing in for at least the principal officers of the cabinet to be, uh, go through their confirmation hearings and have them in place. And we had five confirmation hearings going on today, including Tony Blinken, Janet Yellen, and so forth. Very, very important. And then when that is done, I think what they will reach agreement on is a sort of bifurcated um, schedule where some of the day is for the impeachment trial and some of the day is for processing government business. And in fact, most of the government business will go in the House first uh, and then it'll be presented to the Senate and then and that will be worked through. So I think that works. I think it'll be a short trial, but I think what McConnell has flagged will uh, signal that actually the votes may be there to convict Trump. If, in, if he votes to convict, that the others will uh, there will be critical mass, and it w but we'll just have to see how that unfolds. Um, but what we will immediately have, and it gets to the question of uh, what kind of country it is today, and I think, Simon, you're right, the, the Civil War is with us in ways that we kind of wish it wasn't still 150 years later, and I think that's the shocking realization from what happened at the Capitol. It's not over, and so it gets to, well, how hard, how ingrained 
is this among those who did vote for Trump? And I agree with Garan, I believe, or Jen, I'm sorry, uh, that about half I think are fluid, but half are really locked in, hard, hardcore. And then how do, you, how, how do those attitudes change over time? And I think that depends in terms of how President Biden comports himself and what he's able to do in leadership and how the Congress responds to what he wants to do and to um, address problems so that people feel less alienated, less disenfranchised, less left behind in uh, whatever modern America is today. Um, I, Biden will have, I believe, five, in the first hundred days, I, th I see five priorities. And I think he's been very clear about it. Uh, it's going to be uh, COVID and uh, controlling the pandemic and then ending it with the vaccine program and having that in place. And then uh, right in partnership with it, reviving the economy. So the two are absolutely linked. And he already announced what his recovery plan is. He announced that on Friday, $1.9 trillion. There are a lot of other elements in there that are not basic to recovery as far as how Republicans view it, like what the minimum wage is and so forth. So that's an issue. But those are that's number one and number two linked. I think he wants to fix the holes in Obamacare because obviously people have fallen through that. And that's a legacy issue from Obama and Biden together. And then number four, racial justice and uh, uh, and voting rights. Uh, I believe that was HR1, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act uh, pending. And, and fifth, climate change and uh, elevating that and then moving on that. Uh, and then there, he will also introduce, I believe on the first day, an immigration bill to take care of DACA and other uh, legacy issues on immigration, where the border is and how immigrants and those seeking asylum have been treated. So it, and what I think he wants to do, given everything that he said about wanting to be bipartisan, outreach and so forth, which he got flayed for in the primaries. Do you remember Kamala Harris attacked him for, having to, to, for dealing with senators who were very conservative and racist <laughs> with some of them. But he, he talked with them because he wanted to get things done. Anyway, it, he um, wants to see whether, in fact, given the narrow margins in the Senate, in the House and the Senate, you can do business with Republicans. Um, and I think a signal of the possibility here on this hundred day, this first hundred day agenda, which actually has to be seen, particularly on COVID and the economy, as pragmatic, responsible, middle of the road uh, programs, just to get things, basic things done. Um, that uh, uh, he saw in the lead up to the last COVID relief package, the leadership in the House and the Senate deadlocked, and and Trump, of course. Uh, so. Pelosi and, and um, McConnell were not working together. It was stuck. It had been stuck for months. How big are the relief checks? Can we get it done? And what happened was members uh, on both the House and Senate in both parties, farther down in the ranks, um, felt the urgency, the fierce urgency of now to get something done because the country is in agony. And they produced the package that became the basis for what was ultimately enacted. That is the model by which success can occur. When Obama was elected in 2009, his margin in the House was 39 votes. I worked in the House at that time. We knew on Obamacare, on cap and trade, energy and climate, anything was brought to the floor, we could lose 39 votes from conservative Democrats, the blue dogs, and still win. And that's what that, so that was the calculation. So you tailor your bill to get most of what you want, but you realize you give members an out who are, have difficulty dealing with some of those issues, at home, and but you get it through. And in the Senate, he had 59 senators that went to 60 for a period of time and then back to 59. 
So Obama was in an extraordinarily fortunate situation in the Senate. Um, but still, Obama, he couldn't get cap and trade through. He did get Obamacare through. And through a special process called reconciliation. And if you really want to get into the weeds, we can do that later. And I'll bring my lawnmower out and we'll get into the weeds on reconciliation. So what is, he has now is a six-vote margin in the House. And there, I know from a direct experience, there's no better vote counter and manager than Speaker Pelosi and, and, and the chairs. So the, the model of getting stuff through the House is you divide the packages into their committees of jurisdiction. They work it in their committees. They get a consensus in the committee, get all the Democratic votes, put it together, take it to the floor. And before it ultimately goes to the floor for a vote, you work out any rough spots. And that's how you pass bills in the House. And that's what we will see over the next 100 days. And the Senate, 50-50 and Kamala Harris, 51. Nowhere close to having a filibuster-proof majority. And this is where that bipartisan model uh, comes in. So, so even when you're successful passing the House, it's going to be changed in the Senate to make it even more moderate and more down to earth and less generous and so forth on various things or less aggressive on climate change and immigration and other issues. And so it is a real test. But I have no doubt from listening to Biden and particularly the people that he's appointed, I think, just an expert cabinet and staff there. I mean, they're just really good. The, the, a lot of people say, well, they're all Obama people. They're going to um, repeat all the Obama mistakes. I think humans are a little more intelligent than that. And I think they learn from the past and I think they'll be better. But the whole uh, one important aspect of, of Biden, as far as public perceptions are concerned, is he's always underestimated, right? He could never win the primaries. He could never become a great nominee. He could never campaign in his basement. He could never choose a great vice president. You know, he was always going to not be able to do it. Well, guess who's getting inaugurated tomorrow? And his approval rating is higher than Trump has ever achieved during his presidency. So I think, I think those are the things to watch for in these first 100 days. Can they keep the Democrats together and, and show uh, open windows for Republican support on pragmatic, responsible, middle-of-the-road policies that will get the job done? And if the job is done, and that means a vaccine program that really works really quickly, in relative terms, and then unleash the economy, and then people will feel, what does he want? More normal. So we have a democracy that functions kind of like we knew it kind of sort of did. And I think that would be really, if he can do that, I think that would be really good. He comes in with goodwill. And um, he is, in any other year, no way he would have been nominated. It would have been somebody else. But this is a, a, a real time when uh, the person meets history and history meets the person. And this is it for now. And I, uh, just one other thing, um, the mood. Uh, I, I, was, I wrote today in the Herald and the Age about it. Um, this really strikes me as like 1933. Uh, the, the country is, is in agony. It's on its, its um, prostrate uh, bef uh, before itself and the world. A lot of people wonder, is America a failed state because of how they could not handle the mm -hmm. pandemic? Um, and people are looking for leadership. And Biden, he knows this, and he wants to provide it. He will also, I think we'll see one of the shortest inaugural speeches in history. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think that's also what people want. And they just want to get the job done. And I think he will do that consistent with the values that took him to the nomination but not in a way that cramps it down the throats of uh, 
people who have doubts about where the country is going. So that's a lot and a lot of hope. And maybe he will stumble and maybe we will be really, really stuck. But I think that's how this is going to start. And uh, the next uh, few weeks are going to be really, really interesting. I agree with the next couple of weeks being interesting. There's a lot there, Bruce. I want to come back to it and unpack um, a lot of that um, if I can. Uh, and some and some questions before we open it up to the um, to the hundreds who have joined us online. Um, uh, Jen, um, I'm wondering, are you as? I mean, I, I detected some optimism from Bruce. That suffice to say, about Biden's ability um, to broker um, the the coalitions he's going to need in, in both chambers. Uh, to make headway. Um, I'm wondering if you had any reactions to that, given, you know, what you're tracking, you know, particularly on the Republican side and, and the base and that very pro-Trump part of the Republican base. Um, is, is there any give at all among, um, you know, Republicans in Congress uh, to play ball um, on perhaps COVID might be, COVID relief is probably the easiest of the list of, of, of legislative initiatives. But I'd be, I'd be very curious, your assessment of, of uh, the prospects of um, even a scintilla of, of bipartisanship over, over, the, uh, over the next days, weeks and months. Well, it's a great question. And I think the the Republican Party is fracturing a bit, and we're going to see that most immediately around the impeachment trial that happens in the next week or so. You had the third highest ranking Republican, Liz Cheney, uh, coming out in support of impeachment in the House, um, calling uh, Trump's actions to incite the insurrection, you know, the most, most gravest, uh, you know, active, active sedition and, and violation of oath of office. Interestingly, the Joint Chiefs of Staff had a similar statement um, calling the actions at the Capitol building sedition and insurrection. And already there have been uh, some exercises in vetting some of the guard that is around Biden um, and those people dismissed for, quote, domestic terrorist sympathies. So I think we underestimate the appeal um, and penetration of these conspiracy theories at our peril. I think it has uh, proven successful as an electoral strategy for the Republican Party. I think the Republican Party has over the last few years celebrated and rewarded the most extreme fringes of its own party. Remember, Ted Cruz was almost the nominee in 2016. He started as a Tea Partier. He read uh, Dr. Seuss's Green Eggs and Ham uh, in the middle of the Senate to stop funding for uh, a health program. Uh, for, for healthcare. These positions are ideologically extreme in terms of peer nations. And this was pointed out very poignantly in a great book by Norman Ornstein, congressional scholar, and Thomas Mann in 2012 called It's Even Worse Than You Think. Uh, and at that point, they had already identified that the Republican Party was an insurgent outlier, contemptuous of facts, uh, unconvinced of the legitimacy of its opposition. And so we see those dynamics playing out, but they're very long-standing. They predate Trump and they will outlive Trump as well. So I think we need to be very cautious that this will change the tone in Congress or change the base of the Republican Party. 
given how deeply and widely some of these conspiracy theories have penetrated into the lower levels that we now see active military or retired military participating in, participating in some of this insurrection and sedition, law enforcement wearing militia symbols, uh, three percenter patches, and these are going to take massive reform at the state and local level. There's only so much that Congress can do uh, on its own. And I think the Republican Party fracturing will only hinder uh, some of that development as this becomes, uh, you know, sort of an interesting conflict within the party and between the parties as well. Thanks, Jane. Grana, essentially same question to you, um, you know, in light of sort of our opening remarks about, about the, uh, the current state of American democracy and uh, go ahead and invoke Schrodinger's cat again if you want. But, um, but the, the, the pathway that, that Bruce sort of sketched there, uh, the legislative agenda, just wondering, you know, your assessment of its prospects for success. But, you know, I keep coming back to, and I'll come back to Bruce on this one in a moment, a 50-50 Senate, um, you know, big, there is no margin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's going to be very tough. Um, and obviously we are seeing now that there's been this kind of coalition or the caucus for some sort of bipartisanship that has emerged at least in the Senate. So at least some, uh, if you want to be hopeful, some, some reasons to be optimistic. But um, I would say that Biden, obviously with this, plan uh, for both the stimulus and, and the, the idea of building back better uh, has a lot of ground to actually bring along uh, those Republicans that uh, might not be necessarily in uh, political jeopardy uh, if they come along. So I'm thinking about projects that we've heard about, you know, like infrastructure that's always talked about, right? And that was something that was supposed to allegedly be a, a kind of a ground for, for compromise back in uh, the lead up to 2018 midterms, the whole Pelosi and Schumer meeting with Trump and, and all that. Uh, but obviously um, that uh, didn't materialize. But at the same time, we know that uh, the, the kind of twin pressures of both climate change and the response to uh, the economic crisis that uh, has emanated out of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, th that they provide this sort of imperative to, to think about this. So I would say that those would be maybe kind of specific uh, issues where uh, you could see some, some coming along. And I think that more broadly than uh, with some of these initiatives that uh, don't necessarily focus on particular uh, areas of the United States, but that can be seen more as, as a really kind of a federal response to the, the kind of public works or investment in in that sense, um, that they could, in a way, at least help legitimize Biden in the eyes of those uh, who have supported Donald Trump in the past election. Because again, um, your question on whether we can see a functioning multiracial democracy and this question of how do you, uh, how do you actually reconcile a, a country that's so deeply divided? And this is where kind of my two worlds come colliding, you know, the, the kind of question of transitional justice even, where uh, you you obviously are in this sort of state where, you know, having justice precludes having peace or having peace obviously doesn't give you justice and what, what will be a kind of grand bargain there and whether, you know, in, in pursuing some of these uh, policies that are seen as, again, benefiting the many 
could be seen at least uh, a way to to move forward. Again, I'm not uh, being naive at all uh, about the, the kind of fringes that will remain and that will pose serious threat uh, moving forward and that uh, um, this is something that, you know, didn't just come with Donald Trump. Let's not fool ourselves. Uh, we have plenty of uh, our colleagues who are historians around the university, even on, on this very floor, you know, who point to the uh, post-reconstruction era and, and, you know, White League and all the rest. But um, really... Um, to, to kind of think about these policies that can be seen at least uh, to, to speak to the, the broader public. And Biden, again, with his message with inauguration, uh, is signaling that uh, he is a uniter, uh, unlike his predecessor. Um, Bruce, I want to pick up on that and come back to you to, um, you know, the legislative agenda you sketched and just picking up on Jen and Garana's assessments, you know, the, the 1.9 trillion uh, in, in COVID relief, um, you know, I think that, that you know, I would think that's first cab off the rank and probably the easiest thing to get through. Um, but you mentioned HR1, voting rights, um, racial justice. Um, um, I, I wonder if, if they go off to the Senate to die um, or... Um, and moreover, Bruce, I want to put to you sort of a, a sketch of the next couple of weeks in American politics, and that is a, an impeachment trial, no matter how short, um, just gets the backup of um, the Republican base and, and the pressure coming on to uh, Republican senators um, to play ball uh, and even on, you know, some some Democratic senators, I'm um, thinking West Virginia is always sort of the first one that pops to mind, um, a, a red state, but with a blue senator there, um, a Democratic senator. Um, how much of this sort of more expansive, progressive, frankly, agenda um, is, there, is there appetite for there? And, and how do you get it past the filibuster? Um, I I'll come back to the filibuster later, but there are, I think if you get uh, the super urgent stuff that, again, is just very pragmatic that everyone needs, COVID and a recovering sure. economy, get that done, you get into a rope-a-dope situation and dealing with the Republicans, and then you come back to that to deal with them on harder issues. But you have a good working relationship, trust, trust becomes very important. Impeachment trial aside, we have two different uh, things affecting the atmosphere. First, uh, Trump is not on Twitter. And I, before he was knocked off of Twitter, I was afraid, I, I, well, I knew what he was gonna do. At 12.01, at 12.02 PM, there would be the, the Trump Twitter burst against Biden's inaugural speech. That will not happen. That isn't, that isn't gonna happen, it's not happening now. So there's clearer air for Biden than there would have been otherwise. And as far as Republicans are concerned, by him being off stage and off platform, it means that they have more discretion in what they want to do on these legislative packages than if Trump was calling the shots. And we saw a rebellion against that, as I said, on the, the last COVID package. But it means that Trump, Trump's uh, pronouncements on what he would like to see or agrees with or doesn't agree with are not automatically the Republican positions on the Hill. And so that gives them more flexibility. And that's a very good but then uh, the other thing affecting the atmosphere though is, okay, what happens in 2022? And if you're really hard headed about it in the Republican party, you say to yourself, 
wow, we gained a lot of seats in this election that we were supposed to lose. And, uh, and so we're in a strong, we're only six seats from a majority. That's the smallest majority in uh, decades. Yeah. So, if, so if we play hardball, if we, if we play hardball and deny Biden victories and he becomes a do-nothing president, guess what? We have a better chance of taking back the House and the Senate. So there are opportunities because the atmosphere is clearer and also uh, challenges uh, because uh, a pull in a different direction. Why do, why do this? Because power can be ours. So, you know, if you were all in with Trump in 2020, you were all out of power today as a Republican. So what do you want to do to get that power back? So that is a difficult, you know, that, that they're going to, this is going to be a moment of honesty for everyone. Is Biden up to it? Does he know, can he unlock uh, the doors? And do they, and what's waiting for him on the other side? And do they, when he extends his hand, are they going to grasp it? I, I think it's a really, it's going to be really interesting to see. We'll know very soon whether uh, this model works. On the other hand, just coming back to impeachment, I mean, yeah, a trial and, you know, there's no reputable lawyer who wants to defend the president <laughs> in this impeachment trial. So I don't know who's going to defend him. But what happens if he says, I want to testi testify in my own defense? And he comes to the Senate and uh, he sits there and takes questions. It's not I was thinking about this earlier. It's not a Perry Mason moment. It's not where you, or Tom Cruise, you know, in A Few Good Men or whatever, whatever it is. Uh, the senators don't ask questions directly. All the questions go through the presiding officer, which may not be the chief justice. It probably will be, I think, uh, Patrick Leahy uh, of Vermont, uh, the, who's the new Senate, uh, President Pro Tem, the elder in the Senate. I, I don't think the chief justice wants to do it for a former president. Kamala Harris would be next in line. That's a clear conflict of interest, and I don't think she wants to be in that position. So I think it would come to the highest ranking um, uh, figure in the Senate. But all questions from senators to whoever is giving evidence um, goes through. So a senator doesn't get up, it doesn't have the chance to stand up and lecture Donald Trump on the Senate floor and ask him leading questions. Uh, it'll come through. So it'll be have some decorum. But we, if that's the way it unfolds, it'll be a spectacle unlike that we've never seen before. Um, Bruce, oh, wow, I hadn't thought through. <laughs> but let me ask you, does the Chief Justice have discretion to not preside? Can well, it, it, they will agree. Um, I think he does. Uh, again, on the, if he was a sitting president, there's no question about it. But precedents will be set ah, ah, uh, in this yeah, new situation. Absolutely. And I think the um, other, uh, I think the leadership once, what do they want? And a quick orderly trial. And I think they will accommodate whatever works. So if there's an agreement between Schumer and McConnell on the structure of the trial, that will stick. And I think that'll be just fine. Um, last question, Bruce, um, before we flip to audience questions, a filibuster reform. Um, yes. I always talked about, um, seldom realized. Um, um, and, and feel free to talk about how filibuster intersects with budget reconciliation. If you, okay. if you, if you so dare. I will. I'll dare briefly. Um, uh, the filibuster, which is a supermajority to cut off debate, um, start, started as something that was really rarely used, um, a privilege that senators would resort to, and for momentous occasions like the civil rights bills in the 60s. But over time, as hyperpartisanship has gripped Washington, the filibuster is now standard. Any piece of legislation needs 60 votes to proceed. 
And um, so it's just a fact of life. And people, it's like having a nuclear weapon. You're not going to give it up. So they, you keep it. Um, there is, uh, to get around it a little bit on major issues, there is uh, in the Budget Act something called a reconciliation process, whereby um, uh, provisions in a budget bill can go to the uh, Senate and it's only a simple majority, 51, to approve or not approve. But there are strict rules, something called the Byrd Rule, after Robert Byrd, legendary leader from West Virginia, established as to what could go into the budget bill uh, that, um, so that it could have 51 votes. And, and that means what went in couldn't just be anything. It had to be really tailored to a, a, a fiscal issue, a budget issue, numbers rather than policy. You can't make wholesale changes. You can't yeah. rewrite the Constitution. You can't do major stuff in it, but you can get a lot done on the budget side. Now, um, people are looking at this process, and uh, I've consulted with some people uh, who worked for Republican leaders uh, in the Senate, and um, how the Byrd rule is, is applied comes down to rulings from the chair as to whether something in a reconciliation bill um, fits or doesn't fit with uh, the Budget Act. And if you have a ruling from the chair that, yeah, we can take this overhaul of Obamacare and put it into the bill, right. and we can do something really significant on climate change, and we can and do a lot on COVID and so forth, if it survives a parliamentary challenge on the Senate floor, and that's a simple majority vote, 51, right. that you can actually get it done. So that's one big trick to pull off. But the other big trick is to put something in that the House will take as well. And if it's, again, ultra aggressive, you're going to lose some conservative Democrats. If it's not aggressive enough, or you're going to lose some liberal Democrats. So it's a huge balancing act. But there is a way to thread the needle. What I think will happen is that Biden will go through the regular process. We have this urgent economic agenda. We have this urgent COVID relief and vaccination program. We're putting it to the Senate. If they fail, then, he's, then I think he says to the American people, they have failed. I'm doing the best that I can. No, yeah, yeah. Here are all the compromises I offered. The American people want it. You want it. You want your vaccines. You want more economic relief. You want something in your paychecks, yeah. jobs. So this is it. And that's how he'll use the pressure. So yes, it can be done. It hasn't been done, but there may come its moment. Okay. Um, that's uh, <laughs> deep inside baseball. Um, yeah, sorry. And, and, why, and why we haven't, he literally does know more about the workings of the US Congress than anyone on the Australian landmass. Um, um, let's um, turn um, to some audience questions. I'm just looking at the time. We are 10 of the hour and we can, uh, we are scheduled to run a little past, um, uh, a little longer today. Uh, with the um, variety of, uh, of guests and, and the enormity of the topic we're, we're trying to take on um, an hour. Um, we're not constrained to an hour. Um, look, we've got, um, we've got confirmation hearings um, underway already. Um, literally this morning, our time, um, afternoon um, DC time, uh, Tony Blinken, the uh, Biden's nominee for Secretary of State, uh, was testifying before the Senate. Um, he was asked a question directly. Um, um, did he agree with Lindsey Graham's uh, characterization of um, 
of what's going on against uh, Uyghurs in China as, as genocide. And, and Blinken said he, he did not disagree um, with Lindsey Graham's characterization. Um, just wondering uh, from, from Garana, Jen, um, um, your sense of, um, again, raises a big question um, about the nature of China policy um, that we're likely to see out of a Biden administration. Um, but again, looking at appointments or, or reading of, of tea leaves, sort of um, what you're seeing, perhaps either out of that testimony or out of the appointments, um, early takeouts on, um, on, on the direction of, uh, of Biden foreign policy, perhaps, you know, with a view to Australia's national interests as well. Uh, could we, Garana, why don't you take a swing at that if you so choose? Absolutely. Yeah, I was just uh, jogging around uh, Glee Bay with my dog and listening to Tony Blinken's uh, testimony. At the, That's at living. The, uh, that so, is living Garana. Multitasking <laughs> and living my best life indeed. Um, so, um, yeah, it was actually really, uh, well, it was quite uh, um, amazing to listen just uh, to Tony Blinken agreeing with so much with Lindsey Graham. And uh, that came actually to Lindsey Graham's surprise as well. He said that he would vote for his confirmation, obviously, and uh, threw in also some uh, references to Joe Nye and soft power and, you know, how uh, all the, the bullets can't necessarily buy you what soft power can and so on. You can't go all in with hard power. Uh, but but uh, apart from the, the kind of uh, references to IR bards, uh, it was uh, very uh, interesting to hear the incoming Secretary of State uh, deliver some early sketches of where uh, the administration will go. Obviously, all of us who are in the foreign policy analysis space over the past couple of months have been divining uh, what the future will hold and, you know, going through every possible opinion piece or uh, an essay published by uh, everyone and anyone on the National Security Council or uh, within the, the foreign policy bureaucracy. Um, in terms of uh, some of these issues that you uh, specifically flagged, Simon, so uh, US-China policy, we obviously know that the relations are now firmly in this strategic competition phase. This is not going to change. We are going to see a continuation uh, from the, the Trump era uh, in that sense, in the general orientation. But we know, obviously, uh, even though the, the strategic assessment uh, might be similar, the tactics, the strategy will change drastically. And as you already flagged, this is where alliance politics will come really to the fore. So uh, bringing along uh, in a more meaningful way, both the allies in uh, here in, in this region, Asia-Pacific, Indo-Pacific, what, whatever you might want to call it, uh, and we'll see also that jargon, you know, what happens with it uh, coming in. We know that some friends of Australia uh, are already tapped to uh, head some of the, the kind of key uh, uh, or uh, be at the, the helm of, of uh, the, the policy such as uh, Kurt Campbell was previously at the state and who uh, famously had a lot of disagreements with the way that the Obama administration had centralized the decision-making on foreign policy within the National Security Council. Now he's going to be basically within this system as a czar for, for the region. Um, but also we uh, uh, know that uh, 
the, the kind of resuscitation of transatlantic alliance will bring uh, with it uh, uh, additional leverage vis-a-vis -vis China, especially. We are yet to see, obviously, what exactly those kind of nuances are going to be. I think one of the big questions that we are yet to uh, see and, and kind of uh, we will uh, know more again once the administration comes in, once we see really uh, some of the policy memos and first decisions come out, I think decoupling is probably where I've seen most disagreements uh, coming uh, into, into the administration. So uh, where some have been arguing that basically technological separation is impossible, uh, except perhaps in, in a very small number of, of sensitive technologies, but others say that uh, the, the US really and the West more collectively should be uh, pushing further uh, into uh, separating uh, critical infrastructure and, and uh, even other parts of, uh, of the economy. Uh, on that final point around this decision that the one of the last actually uh, decisions of the Trump administration, and I've seen that have, there have been some questions around uh, labeling China's actions in Xinjiang province against the Uyghurs as, as genocide. Um, words do matter, and especially, you know, as, as a student of ethnic politics, uh, when we call things genocide, uh, that obviously carries that historical weight, but then it beg begs the question, what uh, will be done about it. And this is obviously the critical question in international relations. This is where 1648 and 1948 come colliding, right? The Treaty of Westphalia, which, which basically enshrines this uh, norm of sovereignty of states versus 1948, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the protection of every single uh, life, right, that uh, the United Nations has, has been committed to uh, and, and uh, obviously various treaties and conventions on human rights that have come out of that. We know that the, the 90s have brought uh, the, the uh, norm of humanitarian intervention of responsibility to protect. We know that it's been tested and, and you know, there, there have been very, very mixed results, obviously, over the past two decades. But what is happening uh, in, in uh, Xinjiang province is clearly uh, something that uh, the international community if it uh, if it does label uh, that that uh, uh, as a genocide, then has to uh, come up with uh, the next step. What is going to be done uh, uh, about it? Right. Uh, so. Uh, punitive measures, uh, uh, actions that basically uh, prevent uh, further. Um, further atrocities or violence from happening. So uh, that's, that's uh, you know, uh, something that, you know, the incoming administration might agree with, which is what uh, uh, Tony Blinken has said. But again, it begs the question, uh, what next? Thanks, Grana. Uh, Jen, just wondering, any reflections from, from, from you on that? Um, the other thing that Blinken said was that um, so much of American foreign policy and its power abroad, you know, comes through what, you know, in, in, in the academy we might call soft power channels. And that is, you know, America standing in the world. And, and that begins by repairing, you know, what blinking, you know, the crises currently confronting America domestically. Um, just wondering, you know, how you see this balance between <laughs> needing to deal with domestic crises, um, just, that dashboard blinking as red as you're ever going to see 
with also this ferocious appetite from allies and friends for a return to American leadership uh, through appointments, uh, international fora and whatnot. Um, just wondering your reflections on you know, those many competing policy priorities uh, confronting the new administration and perhaps uh, how some of the proposed appointments speak to those. Sure. So I think the Biden administration will need to engage in a bit of a comeback tour uh, in regards to its allies. Um, I expect that Australia will not have to wait more than a year to be appointed an ambassador under the Biden administration as it was forced to wait under the Trump administration. Um, I expect to see some changes in how appointments are selected relative to the Trump administration. First of all, I don't think we can expect many people named Biden. Uh, to be joining the ranks of White House officials. Uh, remember Trump appointed his children as White House officials. They were given security clearances. They sat in the big chair for the US uh, at G08 meeting. So I think we can, uh, we can already see a shift um, from sort of a family oriented, uh, financially based policy to one that's sort of divorced from those conflicts of interest. Um, remember Biden doesn't own a stock. He uh, promised early on in his uh, congressional career not to have that sort of conflict of interest. Um, so he's not burdened by those now. Um, I, when I was walking my dog this morning, <laughs> was listening to the testimony of Avril Haynes. Um, so clearly Garana, our, um, are both living our best lives as political science nerds uh, this morning. And I think what she said was very poignant for, for what uh, the Trump administration, uh, the, the Biden administration should focus on in, in, in contrast to the Trump administration. And she was talking about uh, doing away with the politicization of intelligence that has been occurring over the last few years. Um, we have a whistleblower account at the Department of Homeland Security saying that Trump uh, intentionally instructed intelligence officials to minimize the threat of white supremacy, to, to minimize the threat of white nationalism in their, in their uh, reports. Um, we had funding stripped from researchers on those same topics of far-right extremism. So I think we can see some of those, those tools restored to fight those challenges. But I think what the Biden administration is going to focus on um, is going to be COVID, the three Cs, right? COVID-19, climate change, uh, and corruption. I think this is a big plank um, that can get a lot of Americans behind it. And that would also push out into the foreign policy realm as well. Um, so we saw various policies and tools around the Majinski Act uh, in Congress and other democratic polities over the last few years. So I think this is a powerful platform that will allow them to marry the domestic focus as well as international reputation uh, rebuilding uh, in light of some of the damage that's been done. Um, Bruce, I want to sort of see if I can get a congressional lens on, on, on some of this stuff. Um, you know, um, with, with the domestic crises just commanding, you know, such urgency uh, at the moment, you know, it, it seems to me at the best of times, foreign policies you know, is very much a sort of below the fold issue, particularly perhaps over on the House side. I think senators with six year terms can perhaps build careers, uh, perhaps burnishing their credentials for a presidential run uh, through sort of, uh, you know, uh, engaging with the tools of statecraft, particularly through some of those big prestigious Senate committees. But just how will, what's the appetite for say, um, defense spending, um, investment in those things that project American presence and, frankly, power 
abroad at a time where, you know, you let off with, with four or five uh, domestic policy items as being sort of the top of the tree right. uh, on, on a legislative agenda. Right. Um, the first thing, though, I want to say in response to Karana, if Tony Blinken can get Lindsey Graham to vote for him, I think there's hope for a deal with North Korea yeah, and, uh, and Iran. So I'm kind of optimistic about where we're headed here. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> um, uh, let's just take some hot spots and just go through. Putin, much more aggressive attitude towards Russia, Ukraine, everything is there. The Mideast, Take what you can from the Abraham Accords, but then more balance on the Palestinian issues and how they're resolved. Um, I'll come to China in a moment. Iran and North Korea, it's clear that they want to re-engage with Iran and see how far they can get. North Korea will be a completely different ballgame. There is not going to be any summit between Biden and Kim Jong-un unless he's willing to surrender his nuclear weapons. So that's not going to happen. And then, you know, but he's he's really, uh, uh, we don't know what, he, what Kim is going to do. So that is it a really, really dangerous situation. But China, 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 and as you've, you know, report that that's it. And I think the posture is, from what I could glean from the hearings, but also leading up to this was, um, that Trump absolutely identified the correct issues. Those are the, in the relationship. They have to be resolved. It's not right. It's not stable uh, economically. It's not stable strategically. And so how you do it, and I think going back to the points made by Karana and Jen on multilateralism and so forth, you rebuild the alliance, the alliances in, the, in Asia and in Europe, and you roll up to China with your friends and you engage with added leverage from your friends being with you. And I think it really comes down to a pretty serious discussion. Okay, what do we want the next 10 years to look like? And, and how far can that go? Uh, but with, uh, you know, uh, and, and more emphasis on human rights. This morning, uh, Blinken spoke about the Uyghurs and uh, the situation, the, the uh, terrible uh, things that they are enduring. Human rights in Hong Kong becomes important. And then on the strategic side, you know, Taiwan is the thing that no one wants to contemplate what happens if, in fact, China moves to um, absorb it into uh, the mainland. And, th and frankly, no one really knows uh, a, if they will do that, but then B, what it really means for everyone once that happens. Is it war? Does it mean that Asia turns into Europe post the Cold War in Europe, uh, you know, that goes on for 30 years? So that has to be faced. But, so there's this, so I guess, Simon, there's this underlay of the international issues below the domestic agenda, but given the heft of the uh, national security team that has been assembled, is going, there will be, it will be present uh, throughout, uh, very visible, get a lot of his attention. And he wants to travel. I mean, he will go to NATO meetings because he wants to, and I expect, uh, I agree with uh, Jen, we'll have an ambassador here, but I'm sure he wants to come to Australia too. He has people around him that are uh, very close to Australia from uh, Kurt Campbell to Bruce Reed, Deputy Chief of Staff as well. And uh, so I see a lot of um, activity by Biden directly, hands-on. Uh, he knows these leaders. He's known them for decades, and he, he likes dealing with them. So I see that involvement as being very important. Hey, Bruce, just putting your DC insider hat on for a moment, the Campbell appointment as a policy coordinator for Indo-Pacific, you know, parenthesis, China, um, um, how does, <laughs> if you're the... Um, 
Assistant Secretary of State for Asia. Yeah, yeah, over in the State <laughs> Department. Like, 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 how does how does this not become a bit? I mean, you're always going to have bureaucratic turf wars as the you know new kids look to really shine in the in in the administration and whatnot. There's always an element of that uh, in in any organization, particularly you know. Uh, the U.S. government, perhaps, as, as big an organization as that, but just your sense of the, that appointment, and perhaps even a similar remark about the Kerry appointment on climate—is um, this where you know good intentions go to die, or, or how do these things work or, or, or not work um, the, in, in your experience? The, first, there are shared values as to what the policy is. I don't see policy disagreements. I think they are turf disagreements. But then you have very able people managing them, from uh, Tony Blinken, of course, Wendy Sherman the Deputy Secretary of State, uh, who is uh, just so important. She spoke with us a few months ago. And so uh, on uh, Iran, that she will, given her direct involvement in those negotiations, very important. I mean, Kirk Campbell is, is absolutely a political animal. And he, but, and he does understand the virtues of working together and the dangers of not working together. But Joe Biden doesn't want his team divided that would undercut his achievement of his objectives. And I think uh, then you have, I think that's where Ron Klain and Steve Reschetti and Tom Donnelly come in and say, we're not going to have this nonsense. Yeah, and they're not, if you start reading about on the front page of the Washington Post that Kirk Campbell's having troubles with the State Department, that's really bad news and B, that will not happen again. So yeah. they, I, I think there's, this is where I think they're smarter than they were eight years ago. And I think we will see real growth and real. So yes, I'm, I'm going to be on the day of the inauguration. Yes, I'm going to be an optimist. Okay. <laughs> but we can talk in six months to see where, where it all goes. All right. Hey, um, in the time remaining, um, uh, a, a lot of the questions um, that we've got um, uh, are back on, I'm just scrolling through some of them, are back on um, 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 domestic matters and some of the political drama. We'll see. I'll, I'll try and try and hold those um, uh, to the end. Um, but, but Jen um, and Garana, um, and um, Bruce, I might come back to you on this one. Um, one thing that gets talked about a lot um, um, was is daylight opening up between um, the United States and Australia on a particularly important issue, and that's climate change. And again, there's the Kerry appointment announced very early on, sort of a signal of intent. Uh, Biden's essays um, over 2020, ahead of the election, you know, with this aspiration to put climate change considerations at the heart of American foreign policy, American security policy. Um, a lot of people went, yeah, that's great. And then when he didn't have the Senate, people thought the ability to, for that to translate into, into action was going to be considerably diminished. Now, with Democrats, with Paris at the tie-breaking vote, and, and subject to all the caveats we were sounding about the tenuous nature of that Senate majority. Now, now that seems to have a little more reality perhaps to it. Um, I'm interested in, in either of you, perhaps Jen, if you want to start first on, on this, um, your read of both the domestic climate, <laughs> no pun intended, for, for, for putting, for realizing that Biden aspiration of putting climate change at the center of everything and, and where that might go um, in terms of policy and implications for Australia. And again, in the context of just an exceptionally crowded policy agenda uh, in, in Washington at the moment. Uh, so I was flipping back through my photos earlier this month, you know, where, where was I? What was I doing in January uh, 2020? And of course, Australia was on fire. Uh, so there I am in a mask 
in Canberra on January 1st because the air quality is 23 times higher than the hazardous level. And I think climate change was really anticipated to be the story of 2020 before COVID hit. Um, and I think that that has catapulted climate change into sort of the consciousness of people who didn't feel it personally impacted them before. But I also think it's um, some of the electoral successes we've seen for the Democratic Party around this issue are linked to the greater understanding of climate change and demographic change in general. Um, so this is the first election, 2020 was the first election in which millennials were the largest voting bloc in the United States. So these, this is not shorthand for kids these days, uh, confession, I'm a millennial. So this is the birth year of uh, 1981 to 1996. This was named for the high school graduating class of 2000. That's why we're called millennials. But millennials are the first generation in which a supermajority understand climate change uh, and its challenges for their quality of life. So I think this is a major driver, that demographic shift, people demanding action on this issue, the demonstration of those negative consequences. And I think that the, the pressure that Biden would put on Australia would only mirror the pressure that's coming from the Australian public as well. Um, we have a vast majority of Australians agreeing that climate change is a problem and it should be an issue. Now at the moment we have a little respite in the weather due to La Nina, but this is a temporary situation uh, and thus the fires will resume again uh, next summer. So I think this, this issue isn't going away. Its consequences are becoming vividly clear to everyone around the world and that we can expect pressure from the Australian public as well as the Biden administration to work together on climate issues, which are, you know, generating of jobs, they harness new technologies, so they are economically beneficial as well as protective of the planet. Karana, um, again, your knowledge, expertise with respect to the European allies as well might be relevant here, but same question for you, your thoughts about this Biden aspiration of putting climate change considerations at the, at the heart and centre of a lot of externally focused uh, US policy. Look, um, we uh, find ourselves uh, living in a country that now risks being um, uh, the global pariah, basically, when it comes to serious commitment on climate change. And um, given the, the changes in leadership in Washington, um, Australia would, would be well, well uh, advised and, and very wise here, the leadership to uh, become a bit more ambitious uh, regarding uh, some of these plans, especially on uh, carbon neutrality and, and so on. What we've seen actually in Australia happening is that uh, some of the businesses and really the investments craving for uh, um, uh, the, the kind of targets that uh, really we don't see at the government level. But obviously climate change is an issue uh, that's much greater than just any US president or change in, in leadership in uh, uh, DC. And uh, this is something where um, we see all across the board and uh, you've mentioned European Union is uh, one of uh, those uh, places that has committed to uh, carbon neutrality by 2050, but so did China, for instance, and, you know, uh, Japan and, and so on. Um, but uh, there is also, again, this comes at a point in time which is vastly different to uh, when Obama entered the office in 2009, when he as well had a pretty ambitious uh, climate change plan, but obviously a lot of the policy bandwidth uh, got got really chewed up uh, with the, the kind of struggle to pass the healthcare bill and then the inability to come to any 
sort of uh, meaningful agreement at the Copenhagen summit back in 2009. But these are different times now, you know, the, the price of um, what is it? I, I believe the, the kind of the, the energy from solar has gone down around nine uh, times, right? Uh, the wind uh, has gone, the, the price of, of using wind energy around 40, 50%. All of these renewables now are way more competitive than they were just a decade ago. And uh, this is now an opportunity again, where you see really the, the markets dictating uh, the change as well. Um, and we find ourselves in, at a time when prices of hydrocarbons are, are uh, pretty much or have been uh, on, on the decline. This is something that, you know, is both a, a positive, but also from a geopolitical perspective, something that uh, we should also keep, in, keep an eye on uh, in terms of the potential for instability to arise in countries that are heavily dependent uh, on on uh, hydrocarbons, especially oil uh, um, there. So um, it's, um, again, it's, a, it's an issue that uh, transcends just uh, one person uh, in the White House. And we are seeing some promising uh, early signals, again, in terms of Biden's direction, both at home. Again, this talk of building back better to basically uh, be uh, connected with what were the ambitions of that Green New Deal, uh, as well as then acting on the international front uh, in concert with others uh, to, to basically uh, see what we hope will be a reversal and, and uh, a decrease on those uh, metrics that are very uh, concerning every single year. 2020 was the, the hottest year after 2016. Uh, on record. So um, we can only hope we, we can continue going there. And again, um, markets tend to be going uh, towards the direction as well. Um, Bruce, um, I didn't see anything directly on climate change again in your opening list of four, five, six. Uh, no, I did mention it, it was uh, climate change is a top uh, one first 100 day priority, no question. So what what's likely to get done other than you know, something uh, he'll do, he'll he'll do the, within the, minutes of being inaugurated, and that is rejoining Paris. But um, they'll, they'll rejoin Paris and they'll repeal uh, as many of the Trump uh, deregulatory actions as possible, and then they'll put a legislative package together. Um, as far as Australia is concerned, I think uh, given the relationship, they will listen very politely to what the Australian government has to say on uh, the pace and scope of climate change and say, we'll see you down the road. And so I think I always felt that the biggest impact on what is done by the Biden administration will be felt here in Australia and, and will affect Australia's political, domestic political debate on climate. And that'll be the biggest impact. But uh, the U.S. is not going to wait. John Kerry is not going to wait for Prime Minister Morrison or Prime Minister Albanese to get together with him on climate. That The, that, the horse is gone from that barn. Um, what do you assess as being the chance? I mean, if I were to pick an issue that has real, real is in deep political trouble on Capitol Hill. Uh, it'd be movement on, on climate change. And, um, and indeed a lot of Democrats, um, no offense go on, but say anything other than Green New Deal. Like that, that's, um, to the extent we're talking about that, that's how we lose our six seats at the midterm. Um, I'm just wondering your assessment of that and handing kind of responsibility to a former Secretary of State, but giving a, you know, sort of signaling this is an up and, an up and out thing or, is, or an executive orders he can do. But I'm just thinking, 
you know, climate change in Capitol Hill, not, not, a, not a place I, I'd imagine, you know, that intersection, I think, is that a null? <laughs> is that an empty intersection is where I'm going with that. I really want to hear from Garana and Jen on this, but um, uh, Biden wants to uh, put it forward as a jobs program. In other words, we're creating a whole new sector of the economy, and that's where it works for middle America. And I think it'll be structured in that way. So a whole bunch on executive orders and, and uh, uh, regulation repeal, but then when it's, it's going to, so the attraction of infrastructure, it's the same kind of attraction in terms of building uh, new jobs in new economies that work. Yeah. Okay. Um, why don't we, with the time remaining, let me arc back real quickly to um, um, to this array of questions we've got um, um, about um, about you know you know it's a very simple question. Again, I, I get it a lot. What's the point of a sec of an impeachment trial after Trump is no longer um, president? Number one, is it constitutional? Um, uh, number two, uh, what's the point? I mean, I think we we obsess over this. We know the answers to those questions. But but um, Jen or Garana or anyone want to um, take a swing at, at at answering those two questions that that we've got coming in online today. And and again, if you're like me, you get stopped and asked that all the time. Sure, I'll start. Sure. And I, I would say for those that are interested in a far deeper answer than we can provide in the next few minutes, there's an excellent book <laughs> called Impeachment uh, by Charles L. Black Jr. That section was written in 1974 in the wake of the Nixon, uh, you know, anticipated impeachment that didn't actually happen. And it was uh, updated in 2018 for absolutely no reason um, by Philip Bobbitt. So there's two sections of this book, and I'm going to draw just from the original part uh, from the 70s. So these are both preeminent legal scholars. And they note that the purpose of impeachment is not simply punishment, right? You could, you could do that in a criminal trial after the individual has left office. But it's impeachment and conviction if it is anticipated that the wrongdoing will continue. And I think that's really at the heart of this impeachment trial. Yes, it is constitutional to have it after uh, a person has departed because the second part um, would potentially bar them from running, off, running for office again. So it would only require a simple majority vote once Trump is convicted. If he is convicted, that would bar him from seeking office, for instance, in 2024 or ever again. I will note that you, as you go through, some of the arguments almost seem quite quaint after the last four years that we've seen. Uh, in one section, it talks about you know, uh, tax, uh, income tax evasion being an impeachable offense. Um, especially if it's using the office to shield one, uh, you know, uh, from, from, from liability and accountability, that's a corruption of office. And at any rate, I quote, uh, a large scale tax cheat is not a viable magistrate, not a viable chief magistrate. So I would say that there's definitely a constitutional basis for impeachment, given that the penalties would impact Trump's ability to run in future, but that does not preclude any criminal, you know, charges or state-based investigations for instance, uh, in, re in regards to the Trump tapes where Trump tries to solicit an election official in Georgia to tamper with those election results. So I would say for those who want a more in-depth exploration of this topic, this is the text to start with, but I'm happy to hear from anyone else as well. <laughs> uh, that, that's awesome, Jen. Thank, thanks. So, uh, Bruce or Grana, anything to add to that? 
No, can't improve on the counselor's response. Excellent. <laughs> That's for any of the, the books on the bookshelf, but I, I do agree um, it's a signal to um, both anyone who uh, potentially would uh, dare to contemplate something similar in the future, but also a signal we were talking uh, at the very beginning of the webinar about uh, America's credibility in the world, uh, this whole talk of potentially, you know, uh, convening a summit of democracies, which I'm not necessarily a great fan of, uh, simply because, you know, there are going to be uh, greater issues around America's interests at the moment, not that democracy isn't uh, an important thing, but uh, at the moment, the United States needs to do that restoration at home first before uh, it wants to claim uh, the moral high ground. And one of the ways to do that uh, is to uh, uh, do precisely uh, what uh, has been spelled out by the Constitution, uh, incitement to, insurre to insurrection, which is an article of impeachment of Donald Trump's second impeachment, uh, is certainly something that was uh, meant to subvert the democratic order in the United States. And in that way, uh, it does send a powerful message and it's important to follow it through. Uh, and uh, again, going back to what Bruce has said, uh, the, the Senate uh, will uh, find some way to, to walk and chew gum at the same time to do the appointments, to get on with the first 100 days policy agenda, uh, as well as to, to see this through uh, to the end. And uh, hopefully uh, uh, it, it's not going to take ages yeah, um, I don't know if one thing I've just been tracking is quite independently of impeachment and conviction, um, the 14th Amendment, um, which is the post-Civil War, right, amendment to the, to the U.S. Constitution, uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says that anybody who has essentially taken up arms or, or conspired to take up arms or rebel, you know, insurrection, sedition against the United States shall not hold any uh, uh, office of, you know, profit, honor, um, and, and, you know, under the United States. And it's, it says that, right? And it's been triggered once where in, um, after World War I, uh, Congress cited that provision of the 14th Amendment in declining to seat an elected member of the House of Representatives on the basis of that members, elected yet to be seated members, that, uh, that prospective members um, uh, opposition to American involvement uh, in World War I. Um, and there was no impeachment trial. There was no conviction in the Senate. There was just a majority vote um, uh, citing the 14th Amendment I I don't know if any of you have been tracking that, but it, but there's been a few articles popping around the internet on there's another vehicle. So Bruce, I guess the question might be, there aren't, suppose a world, there's a trial and suppose it's a 60-40 vote, which isn't sufficient in the Senate. You know, they don't, they don't get 17 Republican senators um, uh, to vote for conviction. They get eight to 10 or something. Um, like that, I'm just making up numbers here. Is there appetite nonetheless for a, a resolution that I think only requires a majority vote to, to, I, I find, think, to find Trump has yeah. violated um, uh, the, that, that provision of the 14th Amendment? I think, I think uh, because what Garana said, uh, if impeachment fails, they would test that 
uh, mechanism in the 14th Amendment because people do want reckoning and accountability. So I, I, it's not a today issue, but it could be a tomorrow issue if the Senate falls short. Yeah, really fascinating. Um, a trial, I mean, you just wonder about the political optics. You know, we can't convict him, but nonetheless, we're going to penalize him. Um, and, and the idea that he might be testifying <laughs> from the well of the Senate. But, um, um, That's, uh, I suggest we co-anchor live coverage of here at USSC of the Trump testimony. Might, might hand that one to you. Uh, <laughs> hey, hey um, that brings us almost to 90 minutes. And so I think we'll, we'll, draw, we'll call an end of proceedings here. As, as the conversation and the questions reveal, it, it's an incredibly full agenda in the US, suffice to say. Um, uh, the, the, the crises between the insurrection and, and COVID, both as a public health and humanitarian um, matter and an economic matter and the implications for American power. That's the core business of the United States Study Center at the moment, suffice to say. It's a very busy time for us. Um, it would be in any event with the new administration coming to power, but set against these, these manifold crises in the United States. Um, we are not having a, a quiet summer at the United States Study Center by any stretch. Um, and, and by the numbers that are still with us, um, 90 minutes into this, um, um, nor are you, those of you engaged uh, with uh, the United States, and, and particularly those of you invested in the US-Australia relationship like us. So thank you for your attention uh, over these 90 minutes today. Um, thank you for your support of the mission of the United States Study Center. Welcome to uh, an action-packed and a, and a content-packed uh, 2021 from the United States Study Senate. My thanks to Bruce, Jen, and, and Garana. Garana, we will um, see if we can make the time zones align and, and engage you from Rome should um, your, your NATO engagements uh, permit. Um, that would be, of course, a delight to, to see more of you online, even though you're going to be far away from us uh, there in Rome, suffering on behalf of the... Uh, uh, the mission of, of the center, but well done. Um, Still a pandemic in, in Europe, Simon. So yeah, I, I, I understand. <laughs> I understand. Uh, Don't be too jealous, people. Uh, it's not like Europe is open or anything. Yeah, and 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 like me, one of the reflections, like like me, I'm sure one of the reflections you you've had that Sydney, Australia, for us at least here in Sydney, hasn't been a, a, an altogether too bad a place um, to be. Um, during the middle of a global pandemic. Um, uh, small blessings uh, in that. Um, thank you, everybody. Um, we've got, we're getting our program for 21 up and running. Um, this is our opening gambit for the year. Thanks for joining us and, and stay tuned for another webinar from the United States Study Center in the not too distant future. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you.